greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. I uh, enjoyed the uh, Sunday school hour. There's something that happens when a person does a high percentage of the speaking and a low percentage of the listening that, um, well, by the time Sunday school comes, it's just nice to let somebody else stir your mind and heart. But I did feel a little bit sheepish when I finished my notes and um, went looking down the halls here for a Sunday school book and realized that there are some strong similarities between what I had on my heart and what you all were planning to study. You open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 for a message this morning. I want to talk about fellowship. I want to talk about congregational life. Uh, A lot of the focus this week has been on who God is and who Jesus is and what they do for us and our relationship and that is um, with Jesus and the Lord. And um, But this morning it's more of a horizontal focus where we talk about the fact that God has many sons and daughters. And um, these sons and daughters, as Bradley read, from the beginning of the dispensation have found a place and a procedure of interacting. And and what that interaction does is it actually enhances the vertical relationship. But it's more than enhancing it. It actually gives you a a framework to to live out the change that has come to you. Um, As you therefore have opportunity, do good unto all men especially the household of faith. Um, Maybe I wasn't supposed to emphasize that, but it's there in the scriptures. Things kick up a notch when it's between us. It's the long and the short of it. And uh, so I'd just like to use this passage where Paul is writing to one of the churches he helped to found. And uh, it seems like he has a a rather warm and benevolent and a soft spot in his heart for this congregation, even though he wasn't with them. But he saw many things that he that that gave him joy, that that delighted him. And uh, so he writes this letter to them to encourage them some more. Verse one, Philippians two. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. If there be any. Let me start over. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves." Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me." We could read on some more, but I read this to give you a little profile of the book of Philippians. And it, what you see, as I said a few minutes ago, is a man who was very heavily involved in the planting of the church at Philippi, and he has moved on. Reasons and circumstances called him away, and he has moved on. But his ear is tuned to hear how are they doing? How are they making it? And the, and the testimony is coming back. I'm sure it wasn't electronic. I'm sure it was mouth to mouth to mouth, down, whisper down the lane. Philippi's got it together. They like each other over there. They, they, they're doing it. And, and the joy wells up within the apostle. And, um, and he sits down and he scribes this letter. And he thanks them and he praises them and he exhorts them and encourages them and he teaches them. And we want to use this scripture to just lift out some concepts of, of excellent brotherhood. Uh, titled the message this morning, The Brotherhood Formula. You will see in verse 1 through 4 that he, he starts out this, tech, this uh, portion of the letter with the, the, the old if-then formulas. If-then. Now, you don't see the word then so much, but he, he starts off with one, two, three, four ifs, and then he kicks into the thens, which is fulfill my joy, have the same love, be of one accord, don't do anything through strife or vainglory. So if, if you want to have consolation in Christ, if you desire the comfort of love, then you do this. And um, these things are very, very practical when you, when you just pause and, and as you read through and you say, what's he talking about? What's he, what's he mean? And you say, well, he means that if you want this, then you have to do that. Well, what are the things then? And it's things like being like-minded and having the same love. Now, um, if you have a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, and I didn't go back and look this morning to make sure I'm repeating this correctly, but I think on this section it'll say humility, love, and unity as a, as a heading. But... It's pretty easy for us to think about the dynamics of if you want humility, here's what you do. And if you, if you, if you desire this, this component of love, here's what you do. But we get a little bit flummoxed on this thing of unity because in some ways it's an evasive target. From my childhood, I remember listening to Sunday school teachers and preachers and people discuss about how you have unity, and they basically fall down into one of two categories. Some people believe, or at least that's how they talk, that unity is sort of a, um, 
it's sort of a target that you set up and and you shoot for it and you hit the bullseye. Uh, maybe that's not a very good illustration. It's sort of this object that you purchase at the market and then you have it. We need unity. Well, let's go get some. However, as you, as you move through this and you look at the lines of this like-mindedness and doing things together, you suddenly realize that unity is one of those spiritual components that is a lot more like a fruit on a tree or the destination of an equation than it is something you just say, well, I want it, so I'll go looking for it and we'll do it until I have it. Or because I'm doing it, we have it. And all that kind of thing. And and when I look at this little passage here, verses 1 through 4, I see this little... I'm not a school teacher. I don't know how to run chalk. That formula says humility plus love is equaling... Unity, And it's, it's this concept that if you plant the right tree and you graft the right branch into it, you'll get exactly the fruit you were looking for and no other way. And, and one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in their pursuit of unity is that they look at it as the tree that is planted or they look at it as the thing we must compel each other to do and then we'll have it. And, and there's actually two other things that Paul is teaching in Philippians 2 that lay the groundwork, erect the frame, put the roof on, and then the house is unity. And that's what I want to do this morning. Uh, I discovered that um, even though we had a, a lot of Sunday school time on fellowship, why uh, we only covered a portion of the subject, and even after I'm finished, we won't either. So let's just back up and look at this. Um, using that sequence of humility plus love equals unity, we will start first with the themes of humility that are taught in the passage I read to you. He says in verse 3 that the way church life works, the way brotherhood works, is that nothing, and that would be nothing, okay? Not one thing. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. So quarreling, fistfights, yelling at each other. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. This is where one man or one woman would set themselves up and say, listen to me, I have it figured out. Listen to me, I can teach you. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other higher than themselves. A haughty man looks down with his eyes, an humble man looks up with them. That's the meaning of the two words. Haughty by its own definition is the downcast look. It's to be up on the pulpit and you look down. Down on John, down on Keith, down on Jennifer. You just you look down. And, and it's a very easy thing to do. And it gets easier if you push yourself up. But you can't do that and have brotherhood. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Humility is lowliness of mind, this scripture says. It's the dynamic opposite of pride or puffed upness. It is meekness. Now, meekness is more than humility. Um, meekness is one of those incredible descriptions that includes humility. Without humility, meekness doesn't exist. But if you call meekness and humility equivalents, you've missed the power of meekness. 
for she see meekness is where some man or some woman, some person has the tools, the comprehension, the, the understanding of the better way, but he defers anyway. It's Moses leading the children of Israel, meekest man that ever lived. It's Jesus who says, I am meek and lowly, but they could kill him anyway. He could answer any Pharisee to the point that they would hush up. But he didn't always. When he got to his trial and he could have silenced a mob, he never said a word. Not because he was humble, but because he was meek. Oh, he was humble too. But meekness is the restrained power. One preacher I heard once said it's like the wild horse that you pull in off the Arabian desert and you train it. And when he's trained, he can run just as fast as he always did out in the desert but he will only run where he is told to run because he's trained. And that's meekness. I never forgot that. But we're supposed to have in our interpersonal relationships in Christ and an assembly at Philippi or an assembly at Strasbourg or an assembly at Tyrone, we are supposed to be defined by a lowliness of mind that esteems each other. You see, humility is a personal discipline. It is what I do to myself. It is the dynamic opposite of humiliation. That is what externally is done to us and puts us in our place and when we probably deserve it. But it is, it is different that humility and humiliation are not the same thing. I believe that Paul is teaching here that humility is a forerunner to brotherly love. And why would it not be? Surely we can understand that he who is puffed up will struggle to just simply accept the person who sits on the bench beside him. Do you know the story in the Bible of a man that stood in the temple and prayed thus with himself? God, I thank thee that I'm not like him over there by the post. And he condemned himself. And so the first ingredient to have brotherhood, I believe, is the right uh, attitude about ourselves and how we compare to the people we are with. Now, he uses the humility of Christ as a, as a benchmark or as a teaching point, as a something you can compare your own behavior toward, your own attitudes toward, and say, well, go to the perfect example and let's just take... Just a couple minutes to examine this. You know verses 5 through 9 or 10 or 11, wherever the preachers usually stop when they read this passage. But this picture of a Christ who was equal to God, it wasn't robbery or cheating or out of place for him to be equal with God, but he makes himself of no reputation, takes on the form of a servant, being found in fashion as a man, he humbles himself puts himself down, puts himself in the, in the correct place, and becomes obedient to death, even the death of cross. And wherefore God has highly exalted him. Using the, the example of Jesus as a, as a measuring stick for hum, proper, correct, the, the perfect humility, it, is, it includes, number one, laying down your reputation. I know that there's no one here that can answer the question, what all did Jesus lay down? We don't have a clue. Because we never saw where he started from. Now, Maybe you read a book that said and gave you some visuals that you created in your mind, but that's it. That's all. 
you have no idea, I have no idea what Jesus laid down just to take on what you carry around all day long, that is your flesh, a body. Um, the, uh, that, that poem that I love so well out of the ivory palaces talks about the angels whispering and shuddering as the Son of God lays aside his robes of glory and then he takes on the form before their eyes of a, of a person. And they know who people are. They've been familiar with man for a long time already. And they say, there's, and they're whispering to each other, there's a terrible mistake being made. There's a terrible mistake being made. Why would Jesus become one of them? There's something terribly wrong with this. But he made himself of no reputation. It's, it's not a step down off the pulpit to your level. It's, it's, it's measurements that the tongue can't really profile. In heaven, he had power. He was the creator. He had prestige. He was captain of the Lord's hosts in Joshua chapter 1. He had reputation. The angels looked up to him. They adored him as the son of God, begotten of the father, and they knew it. Well, he laid down his reputation. I wonder sometimes how Jesus actually thought about himself when he walked the shore. I mean, what did... I mean, surely all of you at one time have kind of attaboyed yourself. <laughs> I wrote a good article. I built a nice house. I, that pie was tremendous. <laughs> Even if nobody else said so, I, I tasted it. it. It was a good pie. I don't know how Jesus looked at himself. Usually whenever you got kind of close to that subject, he'd start talking about how he's really here to do the will of his father. And that's about where the conversation would stop. And so there was, you know, but you, you, we look at him and you ask this question, was Christ too good for something or anything? He definitely was not too good to eat with publicans. We looked at that. He was not too good to just stay up all night and pray. He did that numerous times. He was not too good to weep with those that weep. Go to Lazarus' tomb. He was not too good to heal a nobleman's servant, a Gentile, a centurion, son, Gentiles. And he wasn't too good to sit down at a well and tell a Samaritan woman about water of life. He was not too good to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, which is a Jew. Yet he was condemned for receiving sinners. But in this reputation, his humility laid the foundation for his love. By, by coming down and being one of us and being one of the bases of us, the angels in that poem whisper, well, at least, God, if you're going to do that, put him in a palace. But he goes to a manger, and they can't understand it. I think that in laying down his reputation, Jesus did a certain absolution of his own personality. I know there's at least one person here, I don't know who it is, but I'm sure there's at least one person here that likes to fiddle around with the personality types and see where they all match up. Well, go ahead. Which one was Jesus? Was he a phlegmatic, fl one of them? <laughs> a, um, I don't even remember the four categories. Anymore. Melancholy, choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic. Who was he? He talked so little of himself 
And when he t- bared his heart, you'd see the father. And we still don't really know if he was a chatterbox or if he was just kind of a quiet, contemplative person. That if he didn't have that reputation of healing the sick, you could walk right past him and never know it was him. We don't know his personality. He laid down himself. Well, this thing of humility and how we see ourselves comes right back home. It comes home to Tyrone. It comes home to Strasbourg. How do I see myself? Am I a person that, that operates under the reality that I have no reputation? What do you drive? A number of years ago, this goes back in the early days of church leadership, one day I, my uncle gave me a call because I was the preacher and he had a teenager. And he wanted to know it, how I felt about a certain car. I said, do you feel that's appropriate for a young Christian man to be driving? He didn't know, and his son was sure it was okay. And um, these kind of conversations go on ever since they made cars. And we talked about it that day for a while. And we talked about what, what, a, what a right car is and what a wrong car might be. And then my uncle said something that I never forgot. He's dead and gone now. But he said, well, he said, I guess it's like this. He said, it's kind of native to us for all of us to want our cars to do a little talking for us. He is right. I mean, probably matters more to boys than to girls, men than to women. But, but I remember one of my co-ministry talking about how hard it was when somebody gifted him a diesel Chevette and to just take that thing and use it. You're laughing because you know about diesel Chevettes. If we would pass them out at the bend of church, not everybody would take one. It just doesn't give reputation. And we like our reputation. Nobody wants to be known as he drives a diesel Chevette. And, and yet, the way of Christ is to give that up. That's hard. That's not native to us. That's not normal. People that give up their reputations ain't normal. Because the normal one of us makes sure that our car is doing a little talking for us. But you can talk about our clothing, what you, what you decide to buy and where you will shop. Does it have to say New Balance on it? Or doesn't it? If you have a choice, would you sooner take Adidas or nothing? This, is, this goes right into the matter between the temples <laughs> or in the temple. Uh, but it, it, when you start talking about that if you're going to have brotherhood, you've got to have this lowliness of mind that is of no reputation and becomes a servant like Jesus. Foxes had holes and the bear, birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hell. And I have watched people, I have worked for people that wanted to put this monster water system in their house because they wanted good water and they wanted lots of it for the Taj Mahal that they were building. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with the builder. And we were marveling at the the sheer folly and the waste and some of the strange things that come to people who want a temple that speaks for them to live in. And then he told me this. He said, well, in our climate today, he said, it's very hard to resell something like this. Because he said, the group of people that build houses like this 
want it to have their signature on it. They would never buy somebody else's signature. I never forgot that. And it just tells us something. And, and there is something about the walk of humility, the life of Christ in us, that says, I live in a bi-level, even though I said I always wouldn't. That's me. Uh, you just finally you just take it because you need a house and it's the one that the Lord is showing you and um, I don't think there's anybody that drives up and down Huntington Furnace Road and looks in and says wow maybe that's just because I don't <laughs> it's, it's, but it, it's just a house and it's a bi-level and it kind of sits in the woods and the moss grows and you got to pressure wash it off or else it looks all moldy and there it is but you can either be miserable about it or you can say, well, it didn't matter in the first place because I've got bigger things to focus on. Humility in congregational life is, is and this whole thing of I, I am low and you are high. And this is not, we're not talking now about being intimidated by each other or uh, struggling with, um, what's the struggle? Not self-awareness, but inferiority complexes. Um, I'm not talking about that. That's that's a man-made problem that you're going to have to work through on your own because it wouldn't be there if you wouldn't have put it there. But I'm talking about how we how we use other people in church life. Um, a few years ago, there was a young lady moved into our community to work at our deacon's store and. Um, we had gotten word that she had had some struggles in life. She wasn't there long till she came to the ministry, and she said that she has a number of needs in her life, and things just go better if she has somebody that, that can mentor her. Well, that sounded fine. And we said, well, sure, let's see what we can do to help. So we talked about it, and we, we asked two couples to, to walk with her and to be her mentors. And um, I went back to her and, and told her that we're putting this in place and we'd like to have a meeting. We'll get you all together. And, and as soon as I told her that we had two couples, I saw her countenance fall. And she said, oh, I'm used to way more than that. She said, I, I would prefer at least six families. <laughs> it sounded like a vacuum sweeper. <laughs> and I said, I don't think we have that much to give you. And uh, it was only a, a few weeks after that, maybe a month or two, and she was gone. And then I got a call from the bishop of where she came from. He said, this lady's asking. Oh, I know she is. But, but we can chuckle at the story. But how much do you suck out of? It's one thing to say, I need my brothers. Yeah, but you can actually overdo that and take it into this arrogant world where they are your servants. And, and I become codependent on them. And humility in congregational life means that I will give as I can, I will take as I receive, but that's where it'll stop. Where do I fit in? Where should I be placed? You know, we just came through our business meeting in our churches, and there's a lot of anxiety that comes up as people try to figure out if they're going to get stuck where they didn't want to be put or where they think they can't go. And um, it is true. Sometimes the church will assign work to a man and he just can't do it. I have some, some, well, they're funny now. But for the most part, I have found that people tend to be way more self-protecting 
about what they will or will not do in the church life than the other extreme. And we, we tend to say, don't put me on for a Sunday school teacher. I can teach the children, but I can't teach the adults. Says who? Well, says me. That's how that stuff gets organized. I decide what I can or cannot do. And the mind of humility, which makes yourself of no reputation and takes on the form of a slave, that's how the New Testament operates, takes on the form of a slave, is going to have a soft openness to just let the superintendent say, will you serve here? And you say, I'll do my best. And that's humility. And, and, and to say, well, I can't lead songs worth a lick. I'll tell you a secret. Just give it a try. And if you can't lead songs with a lick, they will know it instantly. We have had a story back at Sharksville like that. A, a brother, he could hardly carry a tune. And somebody asked him to lead songs. And he said, I don't think I can, but I'll try. And his wife walked out of church. She said, I ain't even going to watch it. <laughs> By the time the first verse was over, we knew that he would never be asked to lead songs again. And we all loved each other. It worked just fine. It works really well if you just simply let the body place the members in order as the Lord would have them. Well, how do you, how do I, whenever I bump into a congregation where I meet a janitor that's been doing it for 30 years, I like to ask them, how did, how did that happen? And the story has always been the same. Well, I was asked to do it, and I've been doing it ever since. I mean, poor fella. All the meals that he got eat late, and my grandfather, he could hardly read the word out loud, read anything out loud. Dutch went better than English, but in his congregation, I think it was over 25 years that he opened the doors, he turned on the lights, he bumped up the heat, and bumped it down in the middle of the service and walked around, and the congregation hardly knew the difference. But John made it happen. And he was put there by the church. He didn't, he didn't go to school and learn how to be a janitor, get a degree in janitoring, and then volunteer, or demand that the congregation make him a janitor. It was the polar opposite. And this is what makes congregational life work. When people are asked to do something and they say, I'll try, and then they go until people say, now that's about long enough. All that to say about you need to have humility in church life. Let's talk now about having the same love in verse 2. Having the same love. Love has many definitions. Several Greek words in the New Testament. You have the, and I don't, didn't even write the, the words down, but you have the familial love, and that is that that, that connection and that attraction and that delight with brothers and sisters. We're all one big family. And I'm not talking about church now. I'm talking about the Criders or the Whitmers or whatever family name you have. Let's, you know, they're all around. And blood runs thicker than water in those situations. They will fight with each other until somebody attacks one, and then they'll unite together and fight everybody else. And that's humanity. It's familial love. Then, of course, there is the phileo love that is found in the New Testament, and this is affection or friendship. And this is the love that is simply, I, I, I like it. Okay. And uh, one of the secrets that I have learned in life is that while the scriptures don't necessarily say thou shalt like one another, if you read with a concordance in, in the left hand, 
and you start tracking phileo, you'll find that it is true that a brotherhood, like a congregation here at Strasbourg, it becomes dysfunctional, almost can't function without phileo being one of your ingredients. I'm not interested in a church that's big and everybody loves each other, but they don't like each other. And you aren't either. If you don't like the person beside you, you need to fix that. Or you will kill this brotherhood here. Uh, the love that he's talking about here is not the third kind of love, which is eros or passion, and that's more in the marriage relationship, but it's that, yeah, that passionate love. It's the agape love. This is, this is the demonstration of Jesus Christ. And I wonder already, as pure and as perfect love that God has and that Jesus had, I wonder if there was anybody that he ever loved but he didn't like. Did he like Judas? Did he like Peter, that big old blabbermouth? He loved him, and he begged Peter to answer the question of whether he loved him. That was in John 21. But if you get your concordance out, one of them is he actually asked Peter, do you like me? And Peter said, well, of course. And it, it hit a raw nerve. But Jesus asked the question anyway. And, and this love is going to have to be present in the relationships to have a congregational life. Agape love is the love that is known of the actions that it prompts. It is a love that exceeds our mental life, our thought life. It, it's more than just a feeling. It's a love that is played out in the actual actions. And so, yeah, there's a work day at Andrews. wonder what's going to happen. Probably depends on whether you like Andrew or not, doesn't it? Oh, we probably shouldn't talk about such things. How do you know that Jesus loves you? We sing the children sing this song, Jesus loves me. How do you know that? Well, he died on the cross. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose again. And now Hebrews 2 says, Hebrews 4 says he's my intercessor. That when I have a problem, I can fall on my knees and I can approach the throne of mercy. And there is the intercessor. And he will give me grace to help in time of need. He loves us. We know it because of the actions that it prompts. Paul talks about their agape love one for another that they have. He talks in there about how... He cared for them, and he cared for them so much that he took a busy man. Timothy, the bishop at Ephesus, was sent. I didn't read this to you, but in verse 19 he says, I'm going to send Timothy shortly unto you. And so you have this bishop of Ephesus that needed a lot of help to get on with it and to do his job well, and apparently he must have because one day he was ready to send Timothy over to Philippi and say, see if you can help them, see if you can comfort them. And Paul loved them, and you know it because he sent Timothy. He took Epaphroditus, who was a sick man later in the chapter, and brought him back to the Philippian congregation. Um, and, and later in verses 17 and 18, the last verses I read, he says, I'm going to be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I joy and rejoice in that. I'm good with that. I, I'm okay with that. I'm happy about that. I'm delighted about it to be able to sacrifice and suffer for you. And, 
knowing all the while that you have the same cause and you rejoice with me. In other words, they reciprocated back. And, and this love, this serving one another, this going out and trying to help where you can, it comes right back into our brotherly love for each other right here. Years ago, we had a, uh, one of our children was born with a genetic disorder and they needed surgery at a very young age and it was a complicated surgery and I forget, was she in the hospital 10 days the first time? Five days. It was long for the man at home. But I remember one morning I was getting ready and I was going to go off to work and then go up to the hospital and spend the late afternoon evening with my wife and the baby, come back home again. And I was getting my things together and the phone rang. It was one of the sisters of the church and she said, um, been thinking about you all. You probably have a bunch of laundry that's not getting done. And I said, oh yeah, there's a pal here. She said, well, just set it down by the laundry. I'll stop in today and I'll make sure it happens. And I've never forgotten that because the little laundry I've done in our family life, it's just kind of a one of the eh, things you have to get done in a week's time. And to think that there was somebody in the community that actually had the processes of thinking they have laundry needs and I will go do that for them. We knew she loved us. As we certainly didn't pay good. We remember when that surgery happened, there was, there was some things going on until the de medical doctors figured out what the issue was and how to correct it. But the night before the surgery, there was a couple that stopped in. And they told us that they're thinking about us. They said when that boy was a baby, we had something very similar. And they told us a story. And they gave us some food, and then they left. And all they wanted to do was just stop in and be an encouragement and say, we've been through it, we know what it's like, don't worry about it, it's in God's hands, and then they were gone. And it was just little actions that showed the thoughts that were going on, prompts. Love is known of the actions that it prompts. And there were people, I remember uh, when we would go to Bible school in Mississippi, we would, there was a two ladies that lived together in our congregation, and every year, the day before we left, they would show up with goodie boxes. We know the drive from Pennsylvania to Mississippi is long, and your children would get restless. Here's a box. You can open these gifts. You can set the timer every, I don't forget if it was two hours or what it was, but you know, after a while, you have these children on the van seats, and we're dads just up there driving along, but we're watching the clock, because in about seven minutes, we can open one more gift. And we had that because somebody loved, okay? And this is the kind of thing that brings people together. And uh, I could go on and on and on. Things that have happened to me. Um, remember going through a very deep, deep time in my spirit. And um, one of my one of my co-ministries showed up and said, let's go out for lunch. And we talked, and he talked about his journey. And then he gave me a little, a little piece of paper. And on it, he had written a quote. He said he found this one time. And it was just simply a quote. I don't have it memorized. It was something about how that our thoughts are... Are, are the masters that bring us to destinations and everything we're enduring today is a result of what we've been thinking and, um, and that this is a journey that is going to take us somewhere, either in total 
disrepair mentally and spiritually or into a high place. And I, it's, it was in my Bible for the next 20 years, maybe, I don't know. Uh, no, it wasn't that long, 15. And uh, I discovered I don't have it in this new Bible. I mustn't have transferred it over. But um, there it is. It, it's, a, it's a testimony of a man that set aside his Tuesday dinner to give a little wisdom to a struggling brother. And that's love. That's what that is. We call it brotherly love, where you serve the other person. Spontaneous acts of love, and they become, they build the best social network in the world. Just never forget that. Now, he says that if you have love, humility and love, you will get unity. Unity is sameness and oneness. It's the quality of being one, not multiple. It's a condition of harmony. And as I said, it's not a means to an end. It is the end. It's where you come out at. When you, when you lay down these stepping stones of humility and love, unity is what a congregation has when, when all think more of others than themselves and when they demonstrate through actions the love that is in their heart one for another. And the Philippians were doing this, and they were being encouraged to go on. But one of the goals... Okay. I did heard a little bit about this story. When you bought this building, it was full of broken windows and birds and leftovers from birds, and there was a lot of work that had to be done. And you did it. Wasn't there something about getting in, getting down, getting dirty together, that when you were all done, you felt like you had something? Of course. See, this is where, you know, somebody said, a bunch of you said, I'm not too good to clean up bird mess. Those of you who would have said, I can't, I won't, that's not my thing, then you didn't get the joy that the others got when they started receiving the rewards of unity. And that just means we, you would have possibly hurt yourself. But this is how it works. I mean, I can go back through the congregational lives of, of, that I have been part of in my life. It would be a total of three mainly and about another six or eight serving as bishop over there. And sometimes that's not very deep. It's supposed to be deeper than it actually is. But you watch these things and you see it come together. The Life in Christ congregation had it rented a little building, and it wasn't really going to do the job. And then they got an offer that they can have a bank. And, uh, but there was one problem, and that is the bank was pretty much in good repair, but the only way you could have church in it was to jackhammer the vault out of the center. And so the owner said, well, he doesn't want it there. His plans in the future are not for a bank anyway. He said, if you want to, you can go ahead and jackhammer the vault out and make it the way you want to. And so with jackhammers by the pairs and with they took out the front doors of the bank so they could drive their skid loader in. And for like eight days, men, after they were done working all day, would don dust masks on and sledgehammers and jackhammers and earmuffs. And they would go in there and wail away on that safe until it was gone. And after a couple of weeks of doing that, they were able to concrete the floor back in, put all new flooring in, and they had a round, perfectly round room for to have church in. And um, there were no corners in there. They'd stand up to preach, the wall just went around. And 
it made for some really funny dynamics. You could you could sit up here and hear one person singing at the back, but you couldn't hear the person give a thought at Sunday school in the second bench because it was round. But those people those people were drawn together by sledgehammering the safe out of the center of the assembly hall. Humility plus love equals unity. So many illustrations we could talk about. But I believe that this, this formula, while it's very general, if you, if you inspect the ingredients, it will bring us together. There is, there is a, a giant threat to brotherhood that is, that is unfolding in our world today. And um, I feel kind of um, apprehensive about it. But um, there is an unveiling of the way we do business in relationships that is happening in the e-world that is, is doing a frontal assault on the things I've just been describing. Um, about, you know, it was 2009 or 2010, I read the book, The Church of Facebook. And um, if you, uh, you might have read it, um, it's basically a writer acknowledging that um, the whole social media, particularly Facebook, because that's kind of the Coca-Cola of pop, um, is, is changing how relationships do business. And uh, in there, he talks about these four men that were tasked to, to define what community is. And one of the men was a Shane Hips, who was a lead pastor of the Phoenix Mennonite Church in Arizona. I don't know anything about it, but I just thought it was interesting to see a Mennonite preacher show up in this whole discussion. But those men came together, and what they did is they said, okay, let's be honest, let's be scriptural, let's, be, let's use God's values, and let's say, what is community? And we're going to back up and look at how the church answers that profile, and then we're going to put social media into that profile and see how it all works out. And I've never forgotten it, because what they came up with was that community has four ingredients. Number one is community to exist must have shared history. Okay, I talked about y'all working together to clean this place up for church. That's an event that you did together. And by having that story together, um, the first year we went to Bible school as principals, we... Uh, the, the one cook had a birthday. She was turning 60, and she was insisting that nobody even make any beans about it, that we shouldn't even talk about it. Well, we just laughed at her, and we went out, and we got uh, some local bakery to make this huge cake that um, was big enough to feed about 75, 80 people. And uh, we got it behind her back. And when we were done eating supper that evening, we sang happy birthday for her. And then the other cook brought this cake out. And they had, what they had done is they had put down some big pieces of cardboard. And I think it was basically four cakes, 9 by 13s all wedged together and really slathered with icing to look like one big one. But he was holding it there. And he walked out to show the students this cake. And he's looking like this and smiling. But what he doesn't know is that there were two pieces of cardboard on the bottom. And when he tilted it over like this, he held firmly onto the bottom one, and the top one took off, 
for the floor. And about the time he knew something was happening was when everybody started to scream and holler and say, look out. Well, it was too late. The cake went shoop and plop right on the floor. And we just had this pile of birthday cake laying there. And what are we going to do now? And, oh, I can't eat off the floor. And the students said, oh, yes, we can. And they went back and got mixing bowls and spatulas, and they scooped it all up, threw it in bowls, and passed it around, and we all scooped out birthday cake. And I still meet people today that say, I remember the time the cake fell on the floor. We have a sense of community because I was there when the cake took a somersault. Okay? And, and what Shane is saying is that if you're going to have community, you need those stories. And church life, this is exactly what happens. You just start assembling. The people come into the area. Yes, I will support that. And you come in. And after a while... You just have these stories. The Sharksville congregation that we were part of started in 1775. The deed for the church is written on sheepskin, and it's signed by King George's seal. There are zillions of stories down through the years, 200 and whatever years that it has been going. Twice it was down to three or four members, and then it would revive and keep going. Today there's over 200 people there, I think. Um, God has been good. But the history, the story is Part of what's building that church. You have shared history. Number two, ingredient of authentic community is permanence. And that just simply means the stories go on and on. Okay? You don't just have one cake story. You actually you don't just have three weeks of Bible school. You have three years and then 30 years, and then your children's children are part of this community. Um, and Strasbourg is doing it with their town. Um, you're, you're actually working on it here at, in your congregation. It's kind of happening, but you actually need it to have something for real. If, if a person comes in here and, and, and is here for a year or two, and then he disappears, he has no community because he has, he has not signed on to the necessary permanence that is needed to have a community that lives. And story after story becomes our life together. Number three that these men decided you need, and uh, this one I hope I can say without being too hard on you all, but it's called proximity. How close you actually are to each other. Now, we learned about proximity in our own lives because we lived where uh, some people say the Mennonites are on a menorah pile. They're just all stacked together. And that can seem accusatory, but we have told those people that we like it. Because there is a, a delight. You see, if, if church is nothing more than what you do Sunday morning, you can really, really spread out. But if church is living with each other, then it's awfully nice when your aunt is just up the road. You can almost see her, and she is a registered nurse and your child runs something through their hand and the knife is sticking out the other side, or whatever. And you can just ring the phone and say, Dorothy, you better come down. I don't know what to do here. And here she comes. Well, what if Dorothy is 45 miles away? Well, then she can't come, all right? You can't be there. I remember um, one of my coworkers saying that um, when his father died of a heart attack, it was just so nice. It meant so much. And it was so meaningful that the fact that the pastor beat the ambulance there. But see, he was just around the block. 
and the ambulance was six miles away. And, and there is something to be known and understood about communities actually living where you can say hi at Ace Hardware. I don't find it in the Bible, but I, these men watched it and said, you got to have it, and they're right. When you have it, you can see it. But you do projects together. Um, years ago, when people had more time, um, the Sharksville congregation had the Lord's Acre, and it was basically the corner of one of the brothers' farms that they had this monster garden. And what they would do is they would plant that thing and they would cultivate that thing and they would harvest that thing and then they would go into the villages and they'd find the widows and they'd find the divorcees and they'd find the children and they'd just say, here's corn on the cob, here's beans. Or, and some of them, they'd do it up. Well, eventually, there were, I guess there was enough of welfare. It wasn't needed and the Lord's Acre is no more. Um, but proximity gives you that opportunity to just... I'll just run over and help you with it. I'll be right there. And uh, when you have it, you you have community. Number four is, I'll put it over here so you can see it easier, but number four is shared vision. We talked about how a community comes together because they experience things, they experience things on and on, and they are close enough that they can keep experiencing but one of the things these men decided is essential for community and fits for congregational life is as they stand together and are doing their things together, they're looking forward and they are united in their vision of where they think they want to go. And this is a core of church life. I mean, it never ends. Ask Brother Keith. I mean, there's just always, if you call a committee meeting, there's enough stuff to put on the agenda because the future is before us and there's questions that ought to be answered. And the best thing under heaven is for the brothers and sisters of Christ to answer them together. Okay? Now, I know that makes a lot of sense to you. And, and what you are. And can you see that love plus humility will equal unity in any one of these four? But what these men were wrestling with is how woefully inadequate social media is to make any of this happen. Matter of fact, what they decided was that social media, at its best, whether it's Facebook or WhatsApp, could only possibly work over here, and that's it. There is no proximity in social media, even if their name does come up on your screen. That's not how I find it. I have friends in Bangladesh, and we message each other back and forth, but we don't share any history. Our proximity is... Okay, and it, it is nice to be able to, to send a message to a friend, and it is nice to get some pictures back of their weekend, and, and, and it's more entertaining than it is edifying not always, but mostly. And, and I think if we understand and are willing to be honest with the realities of what you can have with this pursuit or what you can have with this pursuit, it will direct us in how we use our time. And you come back to this thing of, as you therefore have opportunity, do good unto the 
all men, especially those that are the household of faith. And there's nothing wrong with Keith going to help in New, um, West Virginia. But if that's the only thing he ever does with his life, he will struggle. If that's the context, he will struggle to understand what community is and what for community has. I think I can say that as a fellow bishop and understand. <laughs> and uh, But this is your opportunity. You can pursue this. You can pursue this here. And it will be to the Strasbourg congregation's glory. And you'll be so glad you did it when you, um, when you did it. It's, it's pretty simple, but it's pretty inclusive. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment in seven days that we can come together to worship you and to see one another and to do it together. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you for the scriptures that instruct us on the best way. And we pray, Lord, that we would apply these principles as taught by Brother Paul to our own situation, to our own congregations, and thereby reap the blessings of unity. Father, I pray for this congregation that, that as they go forward, they would love, learn to understand the, the workings of this principle. And I pray that you be with them in all their ways. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.